It was another action-packed weekend in the world of single-seaters with British Formula 4 and GB Championships on track, Spanish F4 and Road to Indy Series underway, and of course, Formula 2 and Formula Regional European Championship underway in Monaco. I am Bethany Waring. We had boots on the ground at Thuxton, um, which probably experienced some much less British weather than we got in Monaco. I'm joined by Ida Wood, who was trackside at Thuxton, and Alejandro Alonso Lopez, who was keeping dry indoors. Um, I guess we'll start with Formula 2 in Monaco, um, which was really a very Formula 2 in Monaco affair. We had championship contenders Felipe Drogovic and Teo Porcher in different qualifying groups, and they had two really different weekends. Uh, Drogovic topped his group only to bring out the yellow flag, and when Liam Lawson and Auma Ayrosa managed to improve, they had their lap times disallowed. And then Teo Porcher topped the second group, but a major crash for Jake Hughes meant the drivers couldn't really match the same um, same lap times that we got in Group A, so Porcher would start second to Drogovic P1. And I guess it was the real first Drogovic versus Porcher moment of the weekend, with Porcher claiming the yellow flag wasn't fair. Um, obviously, he had the most to gain from that, putting his title rival a bit further down the order. But Alejandro, I wanted to ask your thoughts on that and how was... Formula 2 post-qualifying? Well, honestly, I'm not surprised. We we were back in Monaco and back with the yellow flags, red flags controversy in qualifying. I mean, it's something that's going to happen almost every year, I think, because, you know, when drivers push the limits so far in the very last lap of qualifying, there is always a higher risk of a yellow or a red flag because you know there are there are many drivers on track and it's always it can always happen but i mean i think that's racing and um, i am not really worried about about that happening i mean there is a lot of controversy regarding that we have posher and other drivers saying that yeah perhaps times should be Drivers should should lose their their lap times if they cause red flags or or yellow flags, but I I don't think so. I mean, I like to see drivers pushing the limits in the in the very last lap, and if if a crash happens, I mean that's racing, you know. And yeah, apart from that, of course, as a as a result of the of the yellow flags, we we had some penalties, some possession penalties. Which resulted in in Jimmy Watson and Liam Lawson starting a bit farther back in the grid than they were expecting in post qualifying press conference or in in sprint race, and then also it was a start at the back for future race. So the weekend was already tricky for them in that sense. But apart from that, I mean, I enjoyed qualifying. I always. Love, like to I always like to see the cars going at full speed in in Monaco and then obviously the race which we will talk now it was also a great one to see. Yeah, they say um, 
Monaco is more about qualifying than anything else. But um, the person who started race one on pole wouldn't um, actually start race one on pole. Um, Jake Hughes, he stalled on the grid. So that boosted everybody up a position. Um, it was a really strange race for um, for uh, Felipe Drogovic. He, at one point, I'll let you explain what what was the what happened in race one with Drogovic because I wrote that race report I think or I thought fo- oh, no I followed that race and I still don't know what happened. Well, there was a lot going on there. I mean, they they had puncture. I think it was Roy Nisani who hit the back of of Lipe at the star, and he got a puncture then. Apparently he he had some drops of rain in his in his visor and he asked for our, for rain tires. They went for rain tires, but obviously there was no rain at all, so they had to pit again. And each time he was going through the pit lane, he was receiving a, a penalty for speeding. So at one point he they decided to to retire the car because obviously they were so far back that there was no point on, on keep running at a track like Monaco where you cannot overtake. So they decided to retire the car, but given because they were still receiving more penalties for, for speeding because of all those times he, he went through the pit lane and he went over the speed limit, then he had to, to go back to the track to serve all those all those penalties he received and make sure that he hadn't any remaining for the for the future race. So yeah, it was something to be honest, I would have never expected or in, in Formula Two. But I don't know, those things happen. I guess it's it's part it's you know you cannot do anything if if the pit limiter was was calibrated wrongly you cannot do you cannot do anything so yeah at the end they, they asked felipe to to be very careful when approaching the, the pit lane and finally when when he served all his penalties he retired from the race felipe is one of those drivers that will often do the ultimate strategy but i feel like that was really not the way to do it um, uh, but then there was a uh, victory, of course, for Dennis Hauger. Um, it was a really nice and simple race for Hauger compared to some of the other drivers. Um, what do you think this is going to do for his season? He was one of the favourites coming into the year. He's not really quite a, been able to compete with the second-year drivers. So how, how do you think it's going to be for him? To be honest... I don't really know because after Imola, where he was already strong in qualifying and he showed very good race pace, especially in the sprint race, because he had an incident an incident at the start of the future race, so we couldn't see much from him there. But in the sprint race, he showed strong pace. He kept up with Gehen uh, and also with Marcus, and despite he had some Lucy batchboard. So I think could be a good thing a confident boost for sure having having one in, in monaco is it's always nice so yeah he was really dominant in in the sprint race i mean 
in the in the early stages of the race, Johan could stay close to him, but after the safety car, he he was so so strong. He opened a five second gap to to Johan Darubala, and he managed to to claim the win in in a great way. I it was it will definitely boost his confidence for the for the rest of the season. I think. Uh, we'll move on to race two, which was a masterful race for Drogovic. Um, no wet tyres this time. Um, the, oh, there was only one mistake I noticed. There was, um, really late in the race. It was a small, a tiny mistake, but Paul Chad couldn't take advantage of it. Um, and it was a very Monaco-esque drive. There was also... Um, a weekend to forget for Liam Lawson, who was, after qualifying incident, he stalled on the grid, then made contact with Clement Novelak, and then just suddenly lost the pace. Um, it wasn't, uh, a, I wouldn't say it was a classic F2 race, but it was, um, it definitely had something to say about it. Yes, well, I mean, it's difficult. First of all, I'd like to, to say that I was quite surprised by the, the lack of overtaking, or at least the lack of overtaking attempts we had in previous years. I don't know. Of course, last year we had some rain during the races, so it was different. But we, we used to see some, some at least some attempts in, the, in going into Raskas and and so and we didn't see any this time i mean it was quite surprising i was somehow disappointed that they didn't put much show much show on in that sense but the battle between theo and also felipe drugovic it was amazing to see despite there, there was no overtaking and there were like 10 or 15 very tense laps that you know as as a race racing enthusiast, you you love to see the drivers going to the limit in every corner, trying to to get close to the car in front. Felipe not no making mistakes, otherwise he might have been overtaken by by pressure. So yeah, you could see they they were giving it all, and that that was great to see. Yeah, I mean, we're we're about a third of the way through the championship now. Only Djokovic and Porsche have won more than one race. Um, Djokovic is the only one that's won more than two. Um, but we still got nine rounds remaining. So do you expect anyone else to come into the mix? Uh, I, Lawson was one of the favourites coming into the start of the season. So anybody else who's really kind of will see jump up uh, in the coming weekends we will see i mean it's interesting as you just mentioned liam lawson was probably everyone's favorite coming into the season and for different reasons in, in the last three events last three rounds he wasn't able to, to score more than four points i think so I think if he can put it all together, he can be fighting at the top with El Pocher and also with Felipe Drugovic. And apart from them, I expect very, very strong 
race weekends from now on was especially from Jack Duhan, who's been struggling for, for race pace at the beginning of the season, especially a little bit. But now he seems to, to be getting the grips with the car in, in, race, in terms of race pace. And also, hopefully, Yuri Bibbs, who has had some unfortunate weekends with some mistakes on his side, perhaps he, he can catch up as well. It shouldn't be too long to wait for that. We've got Azerbaijan coming up uh, in about five minutes, it seems. Uh, I'll quickly round up, um, Fraka, unless you have anything else to add. Okay, I'll quickly round up Fraka, which was a maiden win for Hadrian David in the first race of the weekend. He was hounded the entire way by Dino Begnovich, um, but there was nothing Dino could do to get through. Begnovich followed that open race too with a lights flag victory and extended the championship lead. I think the most interesting part of the weekend was when I think it was Esteban Mason was sent into the barrier at the hairpin and he caused a bit of a traffic jam. Uh, that brought out the red flag and then Mason got going again without any help and the track cleared before the leaders got there. Um, and even though it took about that long, to the, the, as long as it took me to explain it to actually clear the track, it was like a 10 minute, uh, it was more than 10 minutes actually, it was quite a lengthy red flag period it seems. I guess they did have to give the 10 minute warning for a red flag but it was one of the weirdest red flags I've ever seen and I'm obviously great to see everybody safe but it was one of the it was just one of many weird um weird uh choices from the from race control this weekend um I'll quickly move on from Monaco to uh to British Formula 4 it was another dominant weekend for Alex Dunn, I did you want to recap that uh, in the sunshine? Yeah, it was um, what you can normally expect from Fraxton, so a lot of side-by-side -side racing and slipstreaming to a certain extent. Um, the British touring cars actually provided more action this weekend than the F4s and Ginettas for once, which was quite interesting. Um, but overall, I think it was a weekend because of how early it is in the season as well, being round three. Um, drivers kind of more risk averse than usual, and we didn't see too many crashes. And the ones that we did see um, were actually pretty like, I'd say drivers had done like 10 or 11 laps across the first two races of not hitting each other in those exact same circumstances. They kind of got to the point that by race three, they were like, well, this driver is always going to hold this line in front of me. Why didn't I try and attack them and just go for it? And then it ended in disaster quite frequently. So that was kind of the learning curve that the drivers actually started off being very clean. And then at the end of the weekend, we had broken front wings, um, spins, all this kind of stuff. But yeah, Alex Dunn was, was quick. He, he top qualifying. He won two races and in pretty dominant fashion as well. Um, and Aidan Neat also picked up his first win, which was the first, which is the best ever result for a Neat family member at Fruxton. Because I think previous to that, it was his dad in 2010 in British Touring Cars. Um, and obviously, he's not had the best form at that circuit. 
Um, I, it wasn't a completely fantastic weekend for Neat, though. What, the race one, probably the most drama that happened, though, came in that race with Neat. Can you, what went on there? Yeah, so Fruxton's pit straight isn't a pit straight. It's, um, it's a curve, really. It's hard, it's hard to describe it because in, for example, British Touring Car, because of how slow they are and because you're allowed side-by-side racing, it doesn't matter that it's not a straight. In open wheel cars, it does matter that you're applying steering input because you can essentially choose to either put like an apex in the middle of the pit straight or take it as one kind of like continuous curve. In race one, we had Louis Sharp in front of Aidan Neats going along the straight. Um, and essentially he's kind of strayed right and then added even more steering lock. So the angle he was turning right semi-increased just over in front of Aidan Neat and he clipped kind of the front of him and almost spanned into the pit wall. And because of that, there was then an investigation and Neat was penalized 20 seconds, I think, which just happened to put him like literally just, just behind Sharp in the overall classification. So I think that was a case of the Neat surname in the steward's room, like being a negative against him because I spent an hour, I think in total, um, in the Argenti awning and in the Carlin one as well, watching all the onboards again and again and again. I think I actually watched the whole race twice just on onboards only. And it just did not look like a penalty. It was, it was a racing incident, if anything. Um, and because he didn't actually get hit by anyone afterwards, we avoided like a safety car or anything like that. So it was quite a, you know, for, for that severity of penalty at this level. And also because at British F4, um, and this is very different to F2, where we do actually have a lot of drivers picking up penalty points at the moment, but you, you give penalties to young drivers as well to teach them a lesson. And there was nothing to teach Aidan Neat from that incident. He couldn't really have done anything else differently. And after watching lots of the previous laps, you know, he got so close to the back of Louis Sharp and avoided hitting him. And on this instance, it was actually while both were under acceleration and it was just a difference in speed and the kind of the additional momentum of the car coming across then spun them around. So I, I thought it was a very harsh penalty and he did do a very good comeback in the next race to, to win. Um, but yeah, overall, I think the drama this weekend was a lot less than usual in, in Jets and British F4. We actually had a huge crash in minis or Porsches, I think, um, where someone actually brought a spare car with them because they expected they were going to either end up upside down or on fire. Like that was the kind of level of drama they're expecting. So yeah, busy, busy weekend in the Toka paddock. That just sounds so Toka. I can't wait to be back in the Toka paddock. Um, any any other gossip from Duxton where we can expect to read? Do you want? Yeah, a lot of um, stuff. So I recorded a podcast with Alex Dunn, and we're going to turn that into a scout report. So have input from his engineer, uh, Dominic Scott, who's a team manager of high tech at the F4 level, and he, Alex's dad as well, because none of the other guys worked with Alex during karting, but his dad did. So he had some very useful insight on that. Um, also spoke to a few Genetta drivers. Uh, not many of them are actually considering F4 next year, and it's because the prices have gone up. Uh, a lot of them are looking at GTs and they were talking about GT5 as well. I've not heard about a GT5 like category being created. I know Stefan Vettel's made this GT2 as like an amateur gentleman drivers thing. But a few of the genetic guys are going like, oh yeah, I'm going to look at GT5 next year. 
and I didn't even think to follow up with a question like what on earth is GT5 so that was a bit of gossip I found all the teams were pretty happy with the build quality of the car after three rounds you know there was a lot of concern at the start of the season and committing to that but the teams are happy the drivers are happy um it's actually quite a strong car as well I think given some of the contact we saw it doesn't like you don't lose front wings too easily um and also I spoke to Matt Parry of Peak Performance Management he was kind of working with Aiden Nietzsche in the weekend but there's like a freelance basis and he, he kind of spoke about how he and Kevin Kaur just set up PPM when they were at the Hungar ring in like 2015 or 16 both really bored just watching the racing and like why aren't we still in racing so that's what they ended up doing creating that company and yeah a few other things and I had I had other gossip but it went going from the website is I had a double puncture while cycling on the way there so I had to run my bike 10 kilometers across the southwest of England um and that was pretty torturous and I, I, like, I thought it's fine and then I, I got my computer out of my bag when I got to the track and my computer lagged the whole weekend uh, and ever since it's been a bit iffy so lesson learned do not run 10 kilometers with a computer in your bag because it will not thank you for it I'm not uh, I'm never going to do that so Thanks for the advice. I'll just quickly round up Donington. Um, there was drama in the opening race with Joel Granfors and Matthew Reese collided. Granfors' title rival Luke Browning was then caught up in that incident and Callum Vosen came through to take his first victory in the championship. Mac Esterson and Bryce Allen both took their first wins in the Series 2, um, but it remains Granfors and Browning at the top of the championship standings. And then in GB4, Nicholas Taylor, Megan Gilks and Logan Hanna shared victories. Taylor moves to the top of the standings. And I'm going to try and pronounce some Spanish, some Polish names now. In Spanish F4, Nicholas Solov dominated the weekend with two race wins and a second place finish. Timotheus Kusharzak took his first win of the season, but his 100% podium record was ruined in the final race of the weekend. Uh, he had to pit with a new front wing and he finished outside the points. Um, then there was also action at Indy um, with the Freedom 90 and the Freedom 75. I know you managed to catch that when you weren't running around, so can you... Talk us through that because I was sleeping. Yeah, um, both races were pretty boring, to be honest. Uh, the Freedom 90 was, I think, ran second and the Freedom 75 first because we had rain at Lucas, not Lucas or Raceway. It's now gone back to its original name, which is Indianapolis Raceway Park, sponsored by Lucas Oil, which is like a pointless rebrand. Um, but yeah, so we had rain delay everything and then we eventually had qualifying and Junkos Hollinger Racing were rapid in Indy Pro 2000 qualifying. Um, going back like a few years, they often you'd find drivers who'd come over to ovals, take the higher line, and you could tell who was like really, really like nails it. Like Mateus Leist was a good example when he came over to America. And the Junkos drivers were doing the same in qualifying, except by a two lap average, they looked rapid. But in the race, Louis Foster came through. Didn't have it easy, but once he was ahead, he, he looked very comfortable. And given that was his first overall race as well, like a really good result. But again, you know, he's a massively experienced driver by this point. 
uh, one races in Euro Formula, GB3, British F4, etc. Um, in USF 2000, it was a little dicier, and pretty much because you've got less powerful cars, it's, you're going to have bigger kind of slipstreams or, or have more cars in a tow without it breaking. So that was quite fun, but the actual overtaking just didn't happen, which was really odd to see because the track had dried by that point, but there was just nothing really changing. And Michael D'Orlando won, and he actually, that's his second year in a row he's won it, which is really rare in junior single seaters to have like a trophy event or like a prestigious race and to win it multiple times. So um, it was cool to see him do that. And it's obviously lifted him actually, I think into the points lead and the same with Indy Pro fosters in the points lead there. It's now going to be interesting to see because what you often have with this oval race is, you know, drivers break chassis and stuff, and then you have having to replace them for the rest of the season. Because we basically had a damage-free weekend, the team's almost better prepared going into the second half of the season than they are usually, um, which I think is a really interesting thing to see on the road to Indy because normally you have chaos and, you know, for example, at the start of the USF 2000 season when Miles Rowe broke his car, he had to have a totally new one. It's a bit like that. So the fact that we've had a very clean oval segment of the calendar should mean that a lot of the drivers who would usually maybe be uh, kind of risk or, or be more cautious in the first half of the season because they maybe don't have the budget for the full year. Now they've got past this oval race, it's actually quite a landmark that they can then start taking more risks because they're going to be confident that, oh, the next circuit I'm going to, I'm unlikely to break the car and cost the team another like 80k. Um, so I think the racing itself is going to get more entertaining in both series in the coming weekends. Something to look forward to again. I will have to actually stay up and watch those ones. Um, I think that was all the racing this weekend. Um, is there anything you want to highlight coming up on the site this week? Absolutely loads. Um, we, we did actually have Japanese F4 at the weekend, which was the first time I've missed those races since I think 2017. Uh, Jordan watched them instead and he did the report there. And Honda Junior, Cyan Quid um, won both races at Suzuka. So good home, home race for them. Uh, we also had, we were supposed to have Formula Development, which is like USF4's sister series designed basically for 14 year olds to turn up to and drive and uh, no cars turned up. There were, there were zero cars. So it's now going to turn into a one round season with potentially just one driver in it and you can't award points. There's literally no way you can award champion from that. So the promised um, like prize of paying for the 2023 USF4 season for the champion, I really don't see them delivering that out to the only entrance they've had this year. Um, so that was an interesting one over the weekend. We also had karting, um, the Rotax Max Euro Trophy at the senior and junior level. And it, it was kind of interesting for me because I followed Rotax karting for a bit. And Matilda Olsen is, is actually a really big name in karting. Um, she's won the Euro Trophy, I think, once or twice. Um, but because she's a woman in karting, like people think, oh, she's come out of nowhere and suddenly she's winning. And there was loads of like congratulations, like, oh, it's, it's interesting to see her taking a podium. And I was like, well, she's been winning in this series for a while, so it's not that interesting. Uh, but good to then to actually see people taking attention at Rotax because 
normally it's only the FIA karting that gets attention and the slightly cheaper Rotax stuff doesn't always get the, you know, what it, what it deserves. So it's good there. And Kai Riller has won the first race of the weekend. And I think he now leads the championship in total. Lewis Gilbert, who is one of the title contenders, utterly awful weekend. He's now down to like eighth in the standings. To be interesting to see how the Euro trophy uh, continues. Then on the website, uh, we had on Monday, the Crystal Palace feature go up exactly 50 years ago to that date or, or to that to that Monday 50 years ago in 1972 was the final ever European Formula 2 race on the Crystal Palace street circuit in London. Um, I went around the track. I managed to find this young person. I don't know how old they were, but they, they had like this little trolley they were sitting on and their dog was pulling them along with, by a piece of string. And I was like, oh, well, you're at the kind of the average seating position of a racing car. Can you do a lap? And this was last summer. So I did a lap with them, managed to get really good notes on, you know, what lines you would take and stuff and, and compared it to some drivers who did it 30, 40 years ago. Well, no, 50 years ago even. Um, and then published the feature yesterday, I think. So do read that if you're listening to the podcast because it's a really interesting retrospective on a circuit that not many people have heard of. But you can go and visit any day. It's, it's always open. And it's a really, really interesting one topographically to look at because the elevation changes are insane like macau level pogue grand prix is not that steep even though it's known for it's like uphill and downhill sections like the steepness of crystal palace though is ridiculous um then we had because in addition to me being in fruxton steve being at donington park we also had roger in monaco um in the actual paddock bit in the multi-story car park so he spoke to a lot of drivers a lot of teams uh, we've done like a kind of a Q&A with uh, Drogovic from Porsche whose title rivalry did hit a new level in the feature race because they actually raced each other. But we've got to admit that in the previous rounds, we've been like egging up this title battle and getting the quotes in both of them and like pitting them against each other. So to just have them in the same space and doing that was really interesting to see in Monaco. Um, we also have a feature on Mafi Racing coming up which is a Geneva-based Formula 4 team, but it's actually got its roots in Ethiopia. And they used to organize street circuit racing for, I think, touring cars, but maybe single-seaters as well in Ethiopia in the 1970s and 80s. And I kind of spoke to them about that and their like progressive plans for their Formula 4 team. But they've got one driver at the moment and second one who, who's as yet unnamed. Um, we also have features on other things we're going to do skeleton that's going to be exciting but might not be on the website for a while uh and also we're going to have a look at junior teams that tried to get into f1 so andretti autosport is really really trying to enter f1 for 2023 or 2024 at the moment and the other f1 teams are basically telling them to do one obviously andretti is big in indy car and formula e but it's also an indy light and kind of an indy pro 2000 occasionally um, back in 2010, you had like Campos, Epsilon Muscardi, ART Grand Prix, Supernova, Lightspeed, all of these junior teams trying to enter. Um, and there's a few examples before that, like Durango as well with the Jack Villeneuve entry um, of like GP2 level teams trying to enter F1. So we're going to have a look at that as well before the Andretti bid gets cut off entirely and becomes an irrelevant thing. Well, um... If you've got nothing to read in the over the next, it seems fifty weeks. We we've got a uh, got enough for you. Um, I guess that's all from us today. I'll sign off for now, but please join us again next time for another Formula Scout podcast.
Adiós.